We actually just came off a series that reminded us that God actually loves us a lot more than just the weather and a lot more than just good food, although those are, those are kind proofs that God loves us. We finished up the book of Ruth, which is an incredible story of loss and healing and hope and grace and love. It's, it's powerful to see how God takes a family through some really difficult times. And yet, as they faithfully follow him, he cares for them, restores. And ultimately, we know the book of Ruth points forward to God's keeping of his promises and how God ultimately sent a savior. This week, I saw on a friend's, uh, a friend's church back in New Hampshire posted a little devotional Uh, Actually about dealing with the past, and hopefully this isn't too little for you to see, but it ended with this prayer, and I thought it connected to to what we learned in Ruth. A prayer to God that we would give our past to him, we'd place our trust in him, knowing that he's the Lord of history, and that includes my history. You know, I think one of the problems that we have is sometimes we think about the Bible as for people in the distant past or for other people, but it fails to get personal with us. And then it says, I cannot see all you see. Isn't that true? But I ask you to help me rest in your love and your power. Trusting that you are working out a good plan in and through me for my sake and for the sake of the world. Jesus' work is a lot bigger than just any individual, isn't it? But we're part of that work. And he cares for us personally. He cares for what he's doing around the world. And I don't know about you, but I just found that whole series in Ruth to be really good medicine for my soul. Um, And isn't that awesome that we can open God's word and it can come to our hearts? Hebrews says the Bible cuts to our hearts and opens up our hearts down to every, you know, hiding detail. And then then it does its work. So then I had this Sunday, which is kind of a... A one-off in between the series that we're in, and then we're going to start a new series actually in the book of Genesis, uh, Foundations, we're going to call it, um, starting next week when Danny comes back. And I got to tell you, sometimes it's tricky to know how to preach or what to preach in these, these times in between. So I was just praying, and, and coming into the week, I can tell you I didn't really have um, something evident and clear in my own heart. And then God reminded me of a verse in the book of Job, where we are today, that ties us to the book of Ruth. See, Ruth was about a savior who loves. And man, our hearts need that, don't they? Isn't that great for our souls? But Job makes a stunning statement in Job chapter 19 about our redeemer, about our savior. And I think it goes to another place That God would want to remind us of today. Look at Job chapter 19, starting in verse 25. Job says something powerful. For I know, he says, that my Redeemer, what? Loves? Lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Why do we need not just the truth that our Savior loves, but that he lives? 
Well, I think actually exactly where this verse lands in the book of Job tells us why. Because sometimes life feels like this. Right? I'll never forget as a youth pastor about 15 years ago, we took a bunch of teens to a volleyball game. You probably remember this day too. And I have a very poor memory. So I, I, I'm bad at tracking time. I'm bad at remembering things. But I remember this day. You have some days like that that you remember? We drove our teens about an hour away from our church to uh, a place called Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. And they had a very good uh, men's volleyball team. We watched a pretty incredible volleyball game, I remember. So we pr- took probably 15 or 20 teens. And we took uh, two youth sponsor couples that we worked with, just great people that, that we're so thankful for, Chad and Amy and Chad and Kelly. We drove out, we watched the game, and uh, then we got in the, the vans to go home. I think we were running like three vehicles with the teens spread out among the three. Had a few spare seats, but not many. It was pretty full. And uh, partway back, I got a call on my phone. It was from Chad of Chad and Amy. And he said, um, Matt, there's a problem. I said, what? He goes, um, uh, Amy's, his wife's, their, their, or her parents' house is burning down. What? He goes, it's caught on fire. It's burning down. We just got the call. And he said, and we don't know where they are. I said, we'll pull over. Pulled over on the side of the road. We reshuffled the teens. I think we got them all in seatbelts. I can't swear by that, but we got close. And we... We took the teens back to the church, and Chad and Amy headed right for Amy's parents' house. And uh, we drove, we dropped off the teens. I think about the time we dropped off the teens, I got the call from Chad again that they had located her parents, and they weren't in the home. Praise the Lord. But then we got in the car. We left the church. We drove about 10 or 15 minutes to where her parents lived. It's a house we knew well because... Okay, so out here, not many of us have family. I know we've got a few big family blocks here, but for most of us, we're kind of one-offs of family, aren't we? Which is a neat opportunity that we can become family for each other, by the way. Um, But back in Indiana, we had a lot of family. In fact, I remember one time that we had some uh, divorces and remarriages, and we actually had a family with kids connected to a middle family connected to kids to an end family. This is how it all happened. It was crazy. But you had multi-generations, grandparents. So, so these were the grandparents, and uh, they had a couple of their kids that came to our church and grandkids, and we knew the whole family. And we used to go out to their house for baptisms. We didn't have a baptistry at church. We would go to their house and gather around the pool and celebrate baptisms. And it was just this beautiful house on four or five acres in, rural, in the rural Midwest, which is a beautiful place if you've ever been there. I'll never forget, we drove up the driveway. And the fire trucks were all there. And uh, we walked up, and we just watched the house burn. And the firemen have been able to create a perimeter and contain the house. But at this point, it didn't make any sense to try to go in and save the house. And Ronnie and Anita, who the grandparents had lived there, I don't know, probably 40 or 50 years. They were in the early 60s at the time. And it was just, it was a moment. And in that moment, there was one thing I didn't do. I mean, really, we just stood there quietly. But I didn't say, you know what, let me go see what I can collect. Let me see if I can get my tool belt. Let me see if I can, I can't fix or build anything anyway. But I didn't say, I'm going to fix this. Why not? Because it wasn't going to be fixed. It was a total loss. 
It was completely destroyed. And when you think about a longtime home with all its memories, I remember them thinking about all the pictures on bookshelves. And you think about the catastrophe that you're watching and nothing is going to fix it. What's the answer for that? That's what Job tells us. See, I don't know about you, but I think most of us can relate to a relationship that is so broken that it's not likely going to get fixed in this life. Anybody relate to that? Anybody have a friendship or a family member and it's just so broken that barring a miracle, it's not going to get fixed? Maybe a couple fights for their marriage, but they stand here as it ends in divorce. A business owner pours his life into a business and ultimately it fails or the personal debt mounts and you declare bankruptcy. Or you get the diagnosis, like actually this family who lost their home in a fire, the husband a couple years later found out he had like stage four pancreatic cancer. I remember standing by his bedside. See, there's another great reality beyond the fact that as Christians we have a Savior who loves. And it's this. We have a Savior who lives. Can we pray together and then dive into this? God, thank you for your word. I don't know the heart situation. I don't know the financial situation, the family situation, the health situations, the soul situations around this room today, but I do know that Jesus is greater, that this life is not all that there is. And would you encourage our hearts, as 1 Thessalonians 4 said, with these words today. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Turn back to Job chapter 1, because we need to put Job chapter 19 in its right spot. Many of you are probably familiar with the story of Job. Some of you are not. We, we would guess that this is the oldest book in the Bible. If you do a read-through of a chronological Bible, you'll come to this one real early. But the Bible tells us about a man who had it all and who lost it all. Job chapter 1 verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And the man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and seven daughters. And then the Bible starts to tell us about his wealth. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He had it all. And he wasn't one of these guys who had it all and was self-consumed and pursuing his own ends. He actually had an incredible relationship with God. He, he was doing what is right. He was turning away from what was wrong. He had it all. His kids got along. Amen to that. He had a great family. The Bible tells us about the times that they would get together and, and how Job, after they got together, would offer sacrifices to God just in case they'd sinned. And verse 5 says, he just did Job continually. This was his habit. And then the Bible tells us about a heavenly discussion where God actually says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And then Satan says, of course he loves you. He's got it all. And in a moment, God says, you can take it. And Satan does. Job loses everything. And, and just so rapidly, the Bible tells us. He loses his stuff. He loses his kids. Verse 20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin. And Satan said, fine, then let me make him sick. And, and, and God says, you can touch his body. You can't kill him. Right? And Job is crippled with a painful, oozing, awful illness. We don't know exactly what it was. We just know it, it was miserable. It was painful. It was disgusting. He lost it all. And ultimately, these two things break his wife. Chapter 2, verse 9, if you want to look there. Job is sitting there, verse 8 says, and scraping his sores with pottery, sitting in ashes. Verse 9, then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Now imagine a man who had it all, likely a close relationship with his wife, family, and his wife says that to him. It's got to all be coming apart. And Job says, basically tells her she shouldn't talk that way. And then his friends show up, which seems like a good thing for a minute. I love it when friends show up, don't you? We had some friends who showed up the other day for National Coffee Day. It brought us coffee. Awesome. It's great. Right? Friends at the door. Verse 11, now when Job's three friends, this is chapter 2, heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. His house burned down, and there was no fixing it. By the way, this is probably about the best thing his friends did for him. <laughs> if you want to know what to do when someone's suffering, just go be with them. Then they started talking and it got worse. <laughs> right? And so Job experiences sudden and complete loss, crippling and painful sickness, and then he experiences real and personal despair. His wife says, curse God and die. But then if you read chapter 3, Job actually is at the bottom. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3. Job says in verse 11, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not come out of the womb and expire? Skip down to verse 16. Or why was I not as a hidden, stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? What's Job saying? I wish I had never what? Been born. Now, Job is an extreme example, isn't it? But can all of us relate to a place in life or a time in life where we had some of these same feelings? Can we relate to the sense that it's all coming apart and there's nothing that can fix it? Finally, Job has less than helpful friends and his suffering continues. And that's what takes us to chapter 19. Go back to chapter 19 because... Job has a back and forth with his friends and essentially tries to convince them that it's not his fault. But they won't hear him and they kind of keep going back to that idea. God is just, you get what you deserve. And Job is like, I'm telling you, that's not what hap what's happening. And that's what brings us to chapter 19. And Job begins the chapter by asking some difficult questions, some mind-bending questions if we want to. It's crazy where our mind goes when things are really dark, isn't it? 
By the way, that's not just you. Every person in this room can relate to difficult times and dark questions. It doesn't matter if we stand up here. It doesn't matter if you, you know, if Andrew leads us singing. It doesn't, like, this is a human experience. And what do we know about Job? Here's a guy who loved God, who feared God, who hung in there when his wife told him to just bail on God. But he's wrestling. Have you ever wrestled? If, if, you're, if you're so early in life that you haven't experienced this, I can tell you your time is coming. So what does Job wrestle with? He wrestles with some difficult questions. Look with me at Job chapter 19. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? He's talking to his friends. These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Job wrestles with four questions, and I, I think we can relate to some of these. Why don't my friends understand? It's hard, isn't it, when, when things are a disaster and the people closest to you don't understand? Your family, your friends, they misdiagnose the situation. They misunderstand what's happening, and that's what Job was experiencing. The, the places that we lean on for help can't really help us or don't help us. He goes on. He says not only, he's not only misunderstood by his friends, but he feels attacked by God. This has an echo of the book of Ruth. Remember when Naomi is like, why is, why is, this, why is the Almighty's hand against me? Verse 7, Job says, Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. He, and now Job is referring to God, has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my path. Have you ever had the experience in difficult times of crying out to God and feeling like your prayers are hitting the ceiling? Am I alone in this experience? And you know all the, the, the Bible truths. <laughs> you know that God doesn't miss anything. He knows everything. He hears. But in that uh, difficult situation, it just feels like it's just not going anywhere. It feels like God doesn't hear me. Job goes on, verse 9, He has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone, and my hope has he pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. Job has this idea that God has actually like laid siege to his life. And I love how he ends this because he's not like, I'm some big, strong city. He's like, and it's just my little tent. Why is God angry with me is what's coming out of his heart. And by the way, in a very real way, wasn't what Job was experiencing directly from God's hand. Wasn't it? I mean, God was the one who said to Satan, have you thought about Job? Imagine if Job knew that. He'd be like, don't volunteer me. And then he talks about how alone he feels. Verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. 
I called him my servant. Chapter 1 had said Job had many servants. But now he says, I called him, just try to call the one servant. But he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. I love verse 17. My breath is strange to my wife. Some translations say, my breath stinks to my wife. And I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me when I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. I love young children because they're so friendly. I mean, sometimes as parents, we're like, forget what we were doing. We were doing something. Oh, we were doing a cookout in the park. And um, I think I might have told you this, but a lot of you haven't heard it. We were doing cookout in the park uh, in June or July. And Colleen was talking to Tim because we go down to, what's the park? Anyway. That way. Wordle Park, just across Bangadar on 27th. And we do like a free community cookout. Just tell people about the church, pray for people, we're there for them. And uh, Tim was going, and there's a big uh, uh, splash pad. And Colleen was like explaining to him the right, you know, choices to make on the splash pad. And she was having the don't talk to strangers conversation with him. And he, and he looked at her, very confused. If you know Tim, you can totally hear this. I have a six-year-old uh, redhead who is something. Uh, named Tim. And children have these profound moments, don't they, of realization. And so Colleen was telling him not to, like, to be careful about talking to strangers. We were going to be serving the cookout. He was going to be playing in the splash pad. There are like hundreds of people there. And he looks at her and he goes, but mom, aren't we going to meet people? <laughs> like we probably have a world at peace if we just thought about the way kids do. I was talking to Grace this morning a little bit, Kurt's granddaughter, and, just, and she was just happy to talk, right? And Job is like, even little kids, like you ever seen little kids around someone who's really sick? I've taken Tim a few times to a hospital where someone's all hooked up to, and kids immediately are like, even for people they know. Job is like, I'm all alone. And those devastating times in life have the ability, don't they, to make us, even in a, Big community of people feel all alone. And so we see Job at the bottom. And he cries out for pity. Look at verse 21. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me, O you, my friends. Job is begging for pity. For the hand of God has touched me. And in that moment, right, Job, Job has, has it. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh. He cries out for pity. And then, I love verses 23 and 24. Listen to what Job says in this awful moment of life. Listen to what he says. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. 2022 October the 2nd, in Riverton, Utah, guess what we're reading? <laughs> Job's words. He has this impossible wish. He cries out for pity. He has this wish for permanence that, that people would know. And God does it. 
And for uh, thousands of years, people have come to this book for wisdom and hope. People have leaned on this for hope and help and suffering. Isn't that cool? The psalmist said, forever, O Lord, your word is established in heaven. But we come to this place and it's a little bit like, if we don't know the rest of the story, we're like, will Job make it? Right? It's like the hurricane has come through his village and Job is sitting up on the roof trying not to die. We all watched, you know, Hurricane Ian. I saw somebody this week who said, uh, people would respond a lot better if you called it like, if you didn't call it Hurricane Ian, if you called it like Hurricane Deathmaster 5000 or something like that. Right? Like we saw this massive hurricane come through. And we wonder like, will Job survive? And don't we wonder the same thing for our own souls when the house is burning down? And then we see that there's something that anchors Job's soul. And it's highly unlikely in this moment that Job is going to say what he says, isn't it? It doesn't make any sense from a human perspective, but Job has a relationship with God and Job understands something that we need to know because there are plenty of issues and problems in this life that will not be fixed in this life. So what is the answer? Where does Job go? What a powerful statement. For I know, he says, that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. And then he doubles down. Who I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. I have a couple of questions about this. How did Job know this? Right? Job lives before any of this is written down. How does he know this? And then I have this other question. How much does Job know? This is like way, 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 way before Jesus. But he clearly knows that in the midst of the disaster, there is a God that God is alive, that God is my rescuer, and I'm going to meet him one day. He knows that. You know what strikes me about what Job says? It strikes me how confident this is. Does that strike you? I know that my Redeemer lives. You know what else strikes me? It strikes me how personal this is. You see all the eyes and my's in there? I know my Redeemer lives. My, after my body's destroyed, in my flesh I'll see God. I'll see him for myself. My eyes shall behold him. What anchors Job's soul when the house is burning down? What anchors his soul is there's a real God who knows me, who will vindicate my cause, who will be my righteousness, who will be my defender, and I'm going to get to meet him one day. Are you looking forward to that day? Because I can tell you something. Sometimes in life it all burns down. And, and we in our like human want to try to fix it. And maybe what God wants to remind us is, this isn't all there is. Job knows his Redeemer lives. I wonder this morning where your confidence rests. Well, if it really goes bad, I know my retirement account is big enough. Not anymore. Right? Like, how did 36,000 become 29,000? Well, I know we'll get through it because my family is close enough. 
I know my job is secure enough. I know my strength is strong enough. I know my health is good enough. And I think Job would tell us this morning, don't put your confidence there. Don't put your trust there. Don't try to fix it yourself. Bow your knee, bow your heart, stop yourself, and say, there's a Savior, and he lives. This life isn't all there is. Someday what's unexplainable now will be known. What's unfixed now will be made right then. Do you know every human solution is temporary? Every human solution is flawed. Every situation we try to fix is temporary. But Jesus is alive. Job knows death is coming. I mean, you imagine him looking at his skin with all the sores and all the grossness and being like, it'll be gone someday. But then, then I'll get to meet God. It's certain, it's personal, and it's comforting. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll finish here, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says something similar. The whole book of 2 Corinthians, he's kind of defending his work and ministry and how he served people. But it's hard. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 4, he says, While we are still in this body, we groan, being burdened. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. God's word says this, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. By the way, there's the issue. If all we're consumed by is what we see, then there'll be no solution for the things that can't be fixed. But if we walk by faith. Yes, verse 8 says, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, simple question this morning. What do you do when it's all coming apart? When there really is no fix, there's no solution, there's a great truth for us to hold on to, isn't there? Not just that our Savior loves, but that he lives. And because Jesus is alive, we will be resurrected. We will live one day. We, we will leave this life to the next. Back in 2005, a guy named Aaron Schust wrote a song that became pretty popular, and I was thinking about it a little bit this week. And he actually starts it off right, right in kind of the world that this passage has lived in. It says this, I am not skilled to understand. Have you heard this? What God has willed, what God has planned. I only know at his right hand is one who is my savior. Lord, living, dying, let me drink my strength, my solace, or my comfort from this spring that he who lives to be my king once died to be my savior. My savior loves, my savior lives, my Savior's always there for me. My God, He was. My God, He is. My God, He's always going to be. So when we stare at the fire, I wonder if we need to be reminded 
of a Savior who hung on that tree, gave his life to pay the price, but he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose again. He demonstrated his power, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Can we do ourselves a favor? Can we stop pinning our hopes on this life? Can we stop pinning our hopes on fixing the things here and, and avoiding the fires? And can we anchor our souls in a Savior who lived and died and rose again? And to be absent from the body is to be with him. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this amazing statement that Job made. He made it when life was at the bottom, when there was no way that it would seem to get better. And God, I, I don't know the condition of all the hearts in this room, but you do. Lord, I'm sure there are some in this room who have never left fixing their lives themselves to put their trust in Jesus, to be the Savior from their sin. But for those of us who have, it is so easy to take our lives back and try to make this life all there is. So God, would you remind us today that this life is just but for a moment. It's like grass. It's like a vapor. It appears for a little time and it goes away. This light affliction we experience is but for a moment and it works an eternal, exceeding weight of glory. Please comfort, encourage, strengthen, anchor your people today. Lord, let us pour out our hearts to you, cry out with our questions, be honest in our pain, help us to know how to walk with one another in pity and compassion, not just trying to force people to hear an answer we think is right. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the hope of eternal life. We thank you for the truth of your word that provides us what our souls so desperately need. May it be the food for our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.